the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The primary theme of Advent, as we've been saying, is not the coming of Jesus as the babe of Bethlehem. That's the Christmas story. The main theme of Advent is Christ's second coming. The first time he came to be our Savior. The second time he will come as our judge and king. Whereas last Sunday we heard about the signs that will accompany his return, the signs in the sun and in the moon and upon the earth distress this Sunday we're called to think about the church's role as we await the Lord Jesus Christ. Hence, the focus of the, today's gospel on St. John the Baptist. After assuring John's disciples that he was indeed the Messiah, the Lord Jesus addressed the crowd that had gathered. He asked three questions about John and his ministry. First, he asked, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Second, he asked, but what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? And third, what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Each of these questions holds an important lesson for us today. So let's take a few minutes to examine them. A closer look will help us to determine the church's role as we wait for Jesus' second advent. Okay, question number one. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What is the Lord's meaning here? Well, a reed shaken by the wind reminds me of something St. James says in his epistle, also about the wind. He says, talking about steadfastness and standing strong in the midst of troubles and trials and things that test our faith, James said, the one who doubts it is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. To state the obvious, we all from time to time feel pressure from the wind in our lives. Perhaps in this sense we may think of the wind as pressure from the culture or from the world to doubt God. Pressure to give in, to give a nod ever so slightly, to go along in order to get along, as the saying goes. Whenever that happens, we become that shaken reed 
that unstable or double-minded person. And we start to play a track in our heads that goes something like this. It doesn't matter. It's all relative. I'm okay, you're okay. I'm not hurting anybody. It just feels right. Of course, there are a lot of things that are relative. Relative to the circumstances, relative to a person's perspective or experience, relative to the time of day, to the season, and relative to the location. For example, I like swimming when it's 30 degrees outside, but not when it's 15 degrees. I enjoy a cup of coffee, but not at 8 o'clock at night. These personal preferences are relative on one level. However, there's another level which is different altogether. It's the moral level, and I'm speaking about moral relativism. Basically, to say that the truth is morally relevant suggests that it depends who I'm speaking to and when I'm speaking to them. Moral relativism says that the truth is relative to the moral standard of a person or a group of people. For example, I may think it's okay to tell a few white lies to you because I've noticed in the past that you tend to massage the truth yourself. So that lets me off the hook to tell you a few white lies. Or I may feel it's okay to tell you a few white lies because I'm not going to see you again for six months and by that time the whole water in the pot will have changed anyway. My version of the truth will depend on who I am with at the moment. That's kind of a basic summary of moral relativism. This philosophy has found its place not just in the world but in the church and there was talk about this during the U.S. Uh, election campaign really uh, in terms of what really is true. The, the phrase fake news has something to do with this. But it's, re it's connecting with our moral behavior, truth in terms of our moral behavior, our moral standards. Anyway, it has found place not just in the world, but in the church. And in order to make room for it in the church, some of the leadership over the past 25 years have attempted to cast doubt on the authority of the Bible as the Word of God. The church and the Bible to be objectively true as the Word of God. It is viewed much infinitely higher and much different than a piece of human literature. It is divinely inspired. It is God-breathed. 
It is God's revelation to hum humanity. Unfortunately, in this age of individualism and human rights, this has become a difficult concept for a lot of people, even people in the church, to place myself under the authority of God and to obey his word. This has become very difficult. Evidence of the church's struggle in this area of moral relativism, evidence is the disconnection or the separation of faith and practice. At the root of it, there is this separating of soul and body. I can believe this, but then I'm going to go and do this. And I don't see anything wrong with that disconnect. It's a nice way, moral relativism is kind of a nice, civilized way of defining hypocrisy. I say one thing but do another. Maybe not always, but when the wind is blowing, when it's the pressure is on. The reason for this instability is simple. We place, we've come to place too much emphasis on feelings and on popular opinion. We want to be in with the culture. And we're afraid, we're afraid of not being in with the culture. Why? Because we, we, have, we do not trust in the Lord. An example of this moral relativism is found in the fact that the church has begun to use a democratic process to determine what it should believe. Please think about that for a minute and imagine what it looks like. The church meeting to vote on what it should believe. Whatever group gets the most people on its side in order to back a particular motion. And in that group, who has the most money? Because there's influences there. Who has the best lobbyists? Who has the loudest voice? Whoever has those things wins. Is that really got anything to do with the Holy Spirit? Instead of accepting what the Bible says, people determine what they will believe and how they will act. You don't need to be a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist to know that, a, that an approach like that leads to chaos. This powerful quote from American pastor John Piper leaves us with a lot to think about. Relativism, he writes, is an invisible gas odorless, deadly, that is now polluting every free society on earth. It's a gas that attacks the central nervous system of moral striving. The most perilous threat to the free society today is therefore neither political or economic. It is the poisonous, corrupting culture of relativism. 
standing up to moral relativism and exposing its hypocrisy for what it is, takes faith and trust. John the Baptist did it. And that's why he ended up in jail and ultimately beheaded. He was no shaking reed. He was in prison for having told Herod the king that he'd been wrong in seducing and marrying his brother Philip's wife. So, the role of the church as we await Christ's return is not to be morally relativistic, not to be a shaken reed. There are many images of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the new Israel, the ark, a hospital for sinners. The one image we do not want to be is a reed shaken by the wind. The second question which Jesus asked the crowd in today's gospel was, what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft clothing? In the sketch of John the Baptist in today's bulletin, he is depicted as definitely not wearing cool threads or soft clothing. No slippers, no ball cap, no sunglasses, no bling. His hair is not neatly cropped or gelled. And so, as Jesus said, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What's the point on this, in so far as the church goes? Well, whenever something is soft, we tend to associate the word comfortable with it or comfy. When someone refers to their body as being soft, they mean they've been undisciplined. They're out of shape. They've not been exercising. It's also common for somebody to say that they've had it pretty soft. They mean, of course, that life has been easy. John the Baptist, the man who ate locusts, and wild honey in the desert was anything but soft. As William Barclay put it, John the Baptist was the ambassador of God, not the courtier of Herod. This is an important and critical lesson for the church. We need to examine our lives. Are they too easy? Are they too comfortable? How do my attitudes and, and behaviors align with what Jesus said? If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Two weeks ago, the epistle spoke about the need for us to love sacrificially, unselfishly, with agape love, not love that makes me feel good. This is our calling as followers of the Lord Jesus and as the children of God, to love even when it hurts. 
We are to be in this world, but not of it. We've received a different perspective, a heavenly one, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We've been given new life, eternal life, and at the heart of this new life is our relationship with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trusting His love for us, we love Him. In doing so, we recognize the temptations and the spiritual battle involved. This is why we pledge in baptism and in confirmation not to be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and manfully to fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil, and to continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant unto our life's end. Ours is a call to discipleship, to love and to follow. We are Christ's followers. We are his disciples. Discipleship involves discipline. So in reflecting on this, I must say that those who have impacted my life the most are those who demonstrated self-denial. Two brief illustrations. I remember visiting a little old lady in Centricare in St. John. Somehow she'd been admitted there as a holding place while she awaited admission into a nursing home. This was a large massive, actually, building, very old building with all kinds of wards and units. We had our visit, and she received the Holy Communion. And as I got up to leave, she handed me a folded $5 bill. It was very possibly all the money that she had during this uncertain time in this massive, strange place. I refused it. She insisted. I refused it. She insisted. Her words were something like, take it, dear. I believe that it's always important to give. Second illustration comes through an encounter with a who lived in a small house that was perched on the edge of the bank of the St. John River. One spring, when the ice started to go out, and it goes out with a roar, very powerful to witness, one spring it was clear that she was going to be stranded and that her house may be destroyed by the ice. Grace was blind and she lived alone in that little house. So she came to the rectory with just the clothes on her back. Carolyn gave her a nightie to wear, and we waited for her to come out of the bedroom. But there was nothing, not a sound. We knocked, but Grace was also very hard of hearing. So Carolyn opened the door a crack, only to see Grace, 88 years old, riddled with arthritis, 
on her knees in prayer. As we await the Lord's return, the church must be vigilant, not soft. As disciples, we must be disciplined. However, spiritual discipline does not begin with a bunch of rules. This is what so many people think, that Christianity is about a bunch of rules. It begins with a relationship, with the incredible grace and mercy that God has poured out upon us through his only begotten Son. It begins with a relationship between our heavenly between us and our Heavenly Father. And with some questions like these, how much do I value this relationship? What time am I prepared to invest in it each day? What is my response to the precious blood that Jesus shed for me on the cross? And what do I really think about the benefits of forgiveness and everlasting life? which are now mine by his resurrection. The third question which Jesus asked the crowd in today's gospel was, what went ye out for to see? A prophet? What does this question mean for the church as we await our Lord's return? William Barclay makes two simple points. The prophet, he says, is two things. The prophet is the one with a message from God, and the prophet is the one with the courage to deliver that message. The prophet is the one with the message and the courage to deliver the message. The prophet is the one with God's wisdom in his mind, God's truth on his lips, and God's courage in his heart. Part of the church's role is a prophetic one. Corporately, as the body of Christ, we have a job, a commission, to foretell what is coming. The church is called to speak about the future to the world to shine the light of Christ on the path so that we can see which way to walk. We are to share good news, the good news, which is both present and future. We say it, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. This message, however, runs counter to our culture because it involves death, death to self. I must die to my selfishness if I am to live in the way of Christ's perfect agape love. But this dying is not the end. That's what the world seems to think. This dying is not the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of the new life in holy communion with God by His Spirit who lives in me. Dying to self leads to resurrection, to spiritual birth, being born again. The church is called to speak about this new life 
and maudlin. I don't know why we think that we don't have something to say. I'm not sure why the church thinks it does not have a voice or it does not have a leadership role at this time in history. As we, as the world rushes headlong and the planet seems to be spinning almost off its axis, the church has the light of Christ, the truth of the gospel, to be able to point the way. An example of this voice that the church has, of this leadership role, something, an example that was both strange and comforting to me was the American chapel in Kuwait. In the month of November, instead of beginning to gather messages from home and focusing on comfortable words uh, about Christmas, the chaplain team, being egged on enthusiastically from those who attended the chapel, initiated a series of revival services. Why? In order to prepare the way of the Lord on that airbase. In order to encourage people to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. In order to announce to the whole airbase in that foreign country that was predominantly of the Muslim religion, in order to say, Christ is coming again. Now that, that's being prophetic. That is truth and courage together for God's glory and for the furthering of his kingdom. Today's epistle reminds us that as we await Jesus' second coming, the church is called to be faithful to the mysteries of God, not successful, faithful. We are stewards. That's the word that Paul uses. It means that we've been entrusted with a great treasure. It means, steward means, that our job is not to modify or to tweak the truth, not to massage God's word, but to cherish it, to live it, to proclaim it. It is a living word. It's a life-changing word. And the Lord has promised that, he, that this word of his will not return to him void, but it will accomplish his purpose. In the end, as stewards, the church will be accountable to God for her actions. Christ will come, and he will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and he will make manifest the counsels of the hearts Upon his return, there will be no time for excuses, and there will be no fooling around. The hidden things of darkness, the thoughts, the secrets, 
the silent nods, the little winks, the backroom deals, all of it will be brought to light. Then, when our king comes, he will, he will separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares and the shaken reeds and the soft clothing and the false prophets and the moral relativism, all of it will be burned up with unquenchable fire. Verily, the Lord God says to us, to his church, verily, truly, truly, he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now unto God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, be ascribed all might, majesty, dominion, power, honor, as is most justly due, henceforth and forever.